Okay, what are we studying today? Perspicuity of Scripture and inerrancy. Good, you're both right. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump into this uh, important topic. Both of these are important when it comes to knowing God's Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. It is clear to us. It is inerrant. And that has such a great impact, such great implications on our life. Because it's clear, Lord, we can, we can know what it says. We can know what you have to say to us. We can believe it. We can obey it. Help us to know it better, to deal with difficult texts like we've been looking at in Romans 9 in a faithful way, in a way that says it, it is clear if we study it, Lord, and believe it. We pray also that this topic of inerrancy would be certain in our minds, that we would not doubt your word, that we would not throw out the texts we don't like, ignore them, change them. But Lord, let us accept the truth. This is the word of God, your Bible, your scriptures. So help us this morning as we study theology, bibliology, to not only love your word, but to believe that it is true. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, perspicuity of scripture. What is perspicuity? It's an old word in English. Perspicuous? Clarity. Well, there it is. Is the Bible clear, right? It's on the slide. Most of the questions I ask you are on the slide. Oh, is the Bible clear to God's people? That's probably the last slide you're going to see that word, but it speaks of the clarity of God's word. Is the Bible clear? Because one of the ways that people get around obeying scripture is to say, well, it's too hard to understand. Or if they don't like a doctrine, maybe like election, well, that's too hard to understand. That's not for us to understand. That's God's mysteries. Well, there are some things that are the, the mysteries of God. There are some things that are for God. The, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to God's people. So the question then becomes, what's revealed? Well, the Bible is God's revealed word. So whatever's in the Bible, we can understand. And what is needed for salvation and sanctification is clear. Now, we have to do some work at studying that. But the question is, is the Bible clear to God's people? Not is the Bible clear to the unbeliever? Is the Bible clear to the liberal scholar who's trying at Harvard to disprove, or Princeton or wherever, to disprove the Bible? No, is the Bible clear to God's people? So here's Wayne Grudem's definition on the clarity of Scripture. It's the idea that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. Those are God's people. Those who are seeking the truth of Scripture. Those who want to be sanctified by God's Word. Can we understand all of Scripture, though? Does this mean that we can understand everything? Well, some things are harder to understand. Peter said that about Paul's writings, right? Let's look at that again. 2 Peter 3.15. It's one of those texts that we keep going back to because it does call Paul's writings Scripture along with the Old Testament. And since Paul wrote a large portion of the New Testament that pretty much covers most of the New Testament as being Scripture, we know that the other books of the New Testament are Scripture as well, but we'll talk more about that next week when we speak of canonicity. So if you've always wondered... How do we get our Bible? Who put it together? Was it Constantine? Was it the Nicene Council? Council of Nicaea? Or was it God? It was God through the church. We'll look at that next week on canonicity. Lord willing, we'll get there. Second Peter 3.15 And consider the patience of our Lord, just as also our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters. So Paul wrote about the same topic that Peter's writing about in his letters, speaking them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand. So this, this idea of what Peter's talking about here is the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's easy to understand, but there are some other things that are a little bit harder to understand in Paul's letters. And false teachers that are untaught and unstable distort those teachings, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So there are some things that are harder to understand than others. And if you've studied the Bible long enough, you'll come across passages that are hard to understand. And it might be the 15th or 100th time that you read it that you're like, oh, it finally hit me. That's what it is. Or you hear it explained in a sermon. Or, or you come across it in a theology book or a class like this. And it all comes together. But with the Spirit's help and proper exegesis, all scriptures can be understood. So there's, there's two ditches people fall into. One is... Well, nothing can be understood in the Bible. Nothing at all. 
The other thing is, well, most of it can be understood, but only like the basics of the gospel. And everything else is just too mysterious, which usually equals somebody just doesn't want to face up to what God's word is saying. And then maybe a third ditch, if you want to use that terminology, is none of it can be understood. None of it. So all of it, none of it, and just the parts we like can be understood. The parts that are easy, that are comforting, can be understood. But everything else can't. That's, I think, the average American Christian. They say, oh yeah, John 3.16, that's clear. Although most people don't really understand what John 3.16 is really saying. I mean, they get the point of salvation in Christ, and I think. But in the context of John 3, there's a lot more going on there in John 3.16. But people say, well, John 3.16, you know, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We got those down. Those are easy. But all that other stuff, total depravity and creation in six days and, you know, eternal perseverance, that's too hard for man to understand. But it's really not if we study. If we, of course, have the Spirit's help, the Spirit in us, and use the right ways to interpret, we can figure these out. So here's Gregory the Great, an early church father. He said, Scripture's like a river, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. So you can never quite say you've mastered the Bible. Really, the Bible should be mastering you. But you can never say I've got complete clarity on 100% of every verse in the Bible. Uh, I I don't think there's anybody who's ever lived that has that. Even those of us who are are rather studied up on things change our views, even on small things over time. Uh, I know I've looked at texts and looked at verses or maybe just one word and had a different viewpoint now than I did years ago. Especially as I've preached the text and studied it and translated it, I come to a different view than I did when I was first a Christian and opened my Bible. And so he's, he's saying here, yes, you little lambs, as you're looking for the truth of the gospel, as a person comes to know Christ, the basics of the Christian walk, we can wade into that water, but there's some deep waters. It doesn't mean that we can't get in there as an elephant. It just means that we have to interpret the Bible properly, and pray for God's help. So what kind of proof in the Bible do we have of this? Well, recall that Israel was called to understand the Bible. Now, they didn't even have a copy in their own tent. As they heard it, they were called to understand it and teach it to their children. So this means if children can understand it, then it is understandable. It is clear enough for a child to understand. Deuteronomy 6.6 You know, this even feeds into our view of Bible translations. People say, well, we can't understand the Bible, so we have to have a translation that sort of dumbs it down. People are reading Shakespeare in high school, but we can't understand God's Word, which is translated into modern English. Well, it's too wooden. It's too literal, these translations. No, that's what God would want us to look at the very words of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6.6, These words which I'm commanding to you today shall be on your heart. Shall teach them diligently to your sons. Shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Shall bind them as a sign on your hand. So you need to understand what God is saying. You need to live it out. And the children can understand this. Teach them God's word. So it is clear. Also, in the New Testament, we see the same teaching here. The church is called to raise the children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Where do you get that? You get that from teaching them the Bible. You get that from bringing the scriptures to bear on your child's life. If a child can understand it, then it's clear. Clear enough for the child to understand it. Not every verse. We don't expect the four-year-old to understand all of Romans 9 and the implications of election and God's rejection of certain people. We don't expect that everything in Isaiah and and Ezekiel and Jeremiah can be understood by the three-year-old. But there are things that are clear for the child to understand. It also, in Psalm 19.7, it makes wise the simple, the simple-minded, those who are acting foolishly, especially the believer who's maybe living an ungodly life or committing some sins they need to repent of and turn from. The Word makes the person wise. It gives understanding. This is speaking of God's Word being clear. It's clear enough you can understand it. It gives understanding. It gives wisdom. Psalm 130. God's people are expected to read it. How many times in the Old Testament and the New have you not read? Do you not know? And God tells the nation of Israel and Isaiah, do you not know? They say to him, Isaiah 40 at the end of chapter 40, God, why have you done this to us? Why are you sending us into exile? 
Are you going to bring us back? Have you committed injustice? And he says, have you not read? Have you not heard? The idea is heard it from the reading of Scripture. Have you not heard? And he goes on to speak of God and who he is and how he'll bring them back on eagle's wings. Jesus says this, have you not read? Have you not read the account and the creation account in Genesis to understand marriage, to understand a man and a woman and what they are? And this, this idea about divorce, have you not read Deuteronomy and what Moses said about divorce? God's people are expected to know it. Let's look at these verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. How can we be expected to know something we can't even understand? Well, we can understand it. That's the idea here. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 speaks on this. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, how would they know that? Well, either Paul told them at some previous point, or it's written somewhere else. I think the idea here is that it's written somewhere else. If the world is judged by you, you are not worthy to constitute the smallest law courts. So do you not know? In verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now go back to Romans 6, 16. He expects us to know. He expects us to understand because the scripture is clear. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Romans 7, 1. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. It's the Old Testament law. That the law is master over a person as long as he lives. So God's people are expected to know it, which means it's understandable. It's clear. So here's Isaiah 37. I was speaking of this. It comes up a few times in just a, a few chapters here. Isaiah 37, 26. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From the days of old I formed it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should devastate fortified cities into ruinous heaps. So there's an idea that God's word goes forth and people can understand it. Isaiah 40, 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. So some will go to this verse and say, well, there you go. God's word is unsearchable. Is that what it says? God's word is not understandable. Is that what it says in Isaiah 40, 28? No. God himself is unsearchable. We can't really understand this God that created all things. We can understand what he's revealed to us in his word, but that's really, Job says, the, the fringes. If you look at the magnificent things in creation, that's just a little fringe of who God is. God tells us a lot here in the Bible, but there's no way whatsoever we can fully search out all that God is. That's speaking of God. That's good. That's good theology proper. It's bad bibliology to say, based on that, we can't understand God's word. I would ask, why did he communicate it to us then, if we can't understand it? Now, that's not to say some texts aren't hard. You'll find certain verses in the Bible. They have 25 scholars believing 25 different things on that text. Some are hard, but it doesn't mean there's not one right interpretation, one right clear teaching. Any questions on clarity? Because we've got a lot to cover on inerrancy. Everybody clear on clarity? Perspicuity? Everybody got the right way to spell it? See, Derek, if you want to know, there is an I. All right. There's no I in team, though. Okay. The inerrancy of the Bible. Does the Bible have errors? This is a big one. Now, sufficiency is, is pretty big these days. We looked at that last week. Is the Bible sufficient for, for salvation, for sanctification? Sufficiency is attacked usually from a psychological standpoint, psychologists, some Christians, some scientists, Christian science, not, not the cult, but Christians who hold a high view of science, as in scientism. They believe that we need other things in this world to grow in our sanctification. We need other things in this world to address our sin. So that's saying the Bible's not sufficient. This is a more direct attack. This is saying that there's an error in the Bible. So I don't have to believe that, and I don't have to obey. If it's a, if it's a command, I don't have to obey it. That's really the root of this issue. This is not something people really question until more modern times. This is the easy way out for the scholar to say, I don't like that verse, but I'm not going to say that. 
I'm just going to say someone else wrote it. It has an error in it. God's word has errors. Then I don't have to believe or obey that passage. You might wonder, is that the case? I think you'll find that a lot of the people trying to disprove the Bible and dealing with this issue of errors in the Bible are usually trying to get out from under what the Bible is putting on us. A command to believe in God. The atheists will say, look at all these errors, right? There's 5,000 errors in the Bible. They have all these little charts with all these things. You start looking at that stuff, and it's not actual errors. It's not errors. It's just a different way of saying the same thing, maybe in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. They'll say, look at this error in the Bible. God said he's a God of wrath in the Old Testament. But here Jesus said he's a God of grace. They say that's an error. Is that an error? Or is that God, the same God, saying two different things about himself depending on the context of the passage and the book? So there's no errors. And, And anytime somebody says there's an error, just ask them. This is what we failed to do as Christians often, question the person making accusations. You see all over the internet and social media, well, my friend said this, what should I say to them? Well, the first question is, have your friend back up what they're saying. Right? I saw the other day this thing going around the internet, Charles Spurgeon was a Mason, a Freemason. How do we disprove that? Well, you just first of all ask for the proof. Where's the proof? Well, he made these signs when he was preaching, like, like John MacArthur does, you know. They say John MacArthur's a Freemason. That's well, a lie. They're just, they're just making up things from hands moving during preaching. Or, or Spurgeon had his hand in his jacket like every person in the 1800s when they drew him or took a picture. Well, that's a Freemason sign right there. So Spurgeon was a Freemason. No, where's your real proof? Where's your real proof? So ask people, oh, you say there's an error in the Bible. Which one? Where's that? That's just what I heard somewhere. My atheist friend told me that. That's usually how it goes. Now, maybe if they have one, then you get into it and and you look at it. Let's look at inerrancy. How do we define it? Here, I've got the wrong title, but it's the right definition here. I copied and pasted the the slide to get the same color. That way we can have this nice snowy background castle. That's a real castle, by the way, in Germany. The view that the Bible is completely true and truthful in all it teaches. So this is the inerrancy of Scripture. It's true and truthful in all that it teaches. Wayne Grudem, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. Everything. Now, some people will say there's things in the Bible that aren't really there. They'll say, well, the Bible speaks of a flat earth. And we know the earth is round. What verse is that that speaks of a flat earth? Well, Isaiah says, you know, God made the foundations. He made the pillars of the earth. Yeah, and we say the sun comes up, even though we know the sun doesn't move, but the earth does, right? So it's a figurative way of expressing something. Whatever the Bible says is true, is true. That's, that's inerrancy. Whatever the Bible says is false, is false. The Bible's factually correct in whatever it affirms. So here's that Chicago statement that was written mainly because of this attack on inerrancy. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant being free from all falsehood, fraud, and deceit. There are no errors in Scripture. This is God's Word, and He is true, and the Bible speaks truth. Now, it doesn't mean whatever's said, we're supposed to believe as in follow that teaching. If, if a false teacher is quoted in the Bible, that's the true statement of what the false teacher said, That doesn't mean that we're supposed to follow what that false teacher said, as in believe it and love it and and be converted to his way of thinking. No, but it's true in the sense that he actually said it. Does it correspond with reality? That's, That's really a good way to define truth. All that corresponds with what is real. That's what is true. Not what you say is true. That's the modern way of thinking of truth. What you say is true is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And we can disagree, and we can have two truths. No, it's what corresponds with reality. And, and biblically speaking, it's what God says is true. That's what's true. So here's the logical case for it. And we can back these up with Scripture. God wrote the Bible. We spent weeks covering that. Anybody want to go over that again? What's the main verse you need to memorize for 
God wrote the Bible. God's inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's not even questionable. It's God's word. We'll see today in Romans 9 passage in the sermon that it says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, but it's actually God speaking when you go to that text in the Old Testament. So when God speaks, scripture speaks. When scripture speaks, God speaks. It's the same. So God always speaks the truth. Now, these are some we haven't looked at, but I've got the the important part of the verse right here. He's not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23, 19. God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. He is the God who cannot lie. So God wrote the Bible, and you can see where we're going with this. Secondly, God cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18. It is impossible for God to lie. So if God wrote the Bible, and God cannot lie, what what does that mean? What's the conclusion? The Bible contains no errors and always speaks the truth. That's the only thing we can conclude. To do away with this, we have to do away with one of the premises. We have to do away with one of these premises. We have to say, well, God didn't write the Bible. And a lot of people try that. They say God didn't write the Bible, so the Bible's not true. Or that God has lied. Most people go with God didn't write the Bible, right? They they don't want to completely attack God head on. Some will. Uh, But typically the Christian, the professing Christian who says, I don't believe in inerrancy. I think there's errors in Scripture. They'll usually go after that it's written by man and won't just come out and say that God has lied. I remember when I was first studying the Bible, really getting into the doctrines of grace, and suddenly I'm studying the Bible again after seven years. And I, I contacted my friend who had invited me to church when I first got saved. And it was a big seeker-friendly church, but as I've told many of you with my testimony, that led to my salvation going to that church. And I think the gospel was presented there, but there wasn't much depth. Anyway, years later, I'm learning all this depth, and I'm listening to R.C. Sproul and John McCarthy and John Piper. So I told my friend, you know, hey, thank you so much for inviting me to church. While I wouldn't agree with that church necessarily now, thank you. You know, it was, it was, it was very instrumental in my salvation And now I'm learning for the first time what the Bible actually says about these things. And later he would send me different sermons to listen to. And one was by this woman named Christine Kane. And he said, Christine Kane came to my church. This was a great message. And you should listen to it. And at that point, I knew too much, you might say, to accept that. I had to argue with them a bit. And I said, well, you know, I don't believe that the... The Bible teaches that a woman can preach to men, that a woman can lead a church as a pastor. And so that started this long email back and forth. This was back in the days where people would do long emails and before social media. And we went back and forth and we got all the way down to this issue right here. And he said, well, we all know that there are errors sometimes in the Bible. And I thought, I just wasted hours. Not, not truly. I mean, God used it, right? But I just spent hours arguing with this guy. And if you'd have just told me from the beginning that he didn't believe the Bible was true, we could have dealt with that issue before talking about what God says about the pastoral qualifications. So when it came down to it, that was it. And I could not really argue with him any more past that other than to say right here, God does not lie. God wrote the Bible. And uh, he said, well, we all know. He just kept coming back. We all know there's errors. I should have now, I should have asked him now that I know, which error again are you speaking of? So it's hard, I think, to speak with an unbeliever because they're always going to come back to this right here. But you can just tell them, look, God wrote the Bible and here's the verse. And God always speaks the truth and here's the verse. And trust that the Lord would use the Bible, the scripture, to change their mind. Because we're not the Holy Spirit, but we can proclaim the truth and do so well. Let's look at some other verses here. I mean, this is the main argument right here. If you, if you just remember this right here, you have inerrancy, the case for it. But many other verses speak of this. It's not just these few. God's word is often called true or truth. 2 Samuel seven twenty eight. So now, O Lord Yahweh, you are God, and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your slave. All the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 5. Right, for these words are faithful and true. So all over the Bible, God's word is referred to as truth, as true. Psalm 12, 6, the words of Yahweh are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the ground, refined seven times. 
To be tried means that they're tested, that they're proven, that they're true. It's a figurative way of saying God's word is true. No matter how you test it, it always is true. This is all over scripture. This is not something the believer should doubt. This is something that if you are tempted to doubt that, you need to turn from that. You need to go back and and pray that God would set your heart on his word and love him all the more. And when it comes to membership here, we want every member to be able to affirm this. Because every Christian should say, God's word is true. God's word is without error. Psalm 19.9b, the fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. Sometimes we read these verses really quick and we just think, oh yeah, God's word is true. Now, what is truth? Remember Pilate asked Jesus that? What is truth? Come on, Jesus. Jesus didn't answer him. And I don't want to do a sermon someday on just that one verse. What is truth? Truth is something people hate. Romans 1 says that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Mankind suppresses the truth. God's truth is everywhere. It's in his word. It's in creation. But mankind suppresses it because they're unrighteous and ungodly. And we want to push it down and push it under the water like a beach ball. And it always comes back up, right? You just can't get that thing down because the truth is always there. And that's why people hate God's word. That's why people hate Christians. That's why people hate God. God says mankind is sinful, that you're a sinner. And not everyone loves to hear that. Our natural heart hates that. Your word is exceedingly refined, therefore your slave loves it. If it's refined, then the word is true. The word is true. Psalm, this should be, I think, 119, 160. I don't think uh, other Psalms have 160 verses. By the way, if you haven't figured it out, Psalm 119 is all about God's word. The sum of your word is truth. How do we sum up all of God's word? Well, you would probably say the gospel, grace, love. Those aren't wrong. But here the psalmist focuses on truth. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. It's true. It'll always be there. It's not going away. It's everlasting. Psalm 119, 151. Near are you, O Yahweh, and all your commandments are truth. What about that one I don't like? What about those two things in the Bible I really don't like or that the world hates or that my friend doesn't like or my family really doesn't want me to talk about? All your commandments are truth. Every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. So a lot of Christians want to go run to God as the strong tower. Amen. Every word is true, though. That's what, that's what this is based on, right? Because God's very being is truth. And he has every word that he gives us as being true. We can go to him as a shield. Otherwise, if he lies in his word, what kind of God is that? Is that a God you could seek refuge in if he's lying to us? No, the proverb here says every word of God is tested. Because of that, he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. John 10, 35. Here's Jesus' argument. Jesus' argument for inerrancy. The scripture cannot be broken. Just a parenthetical. He's arguing with the Pharisees and he's making his case. And he says, and the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, my argument is certain because scripture cannot be broken, which is a way of saying scripture is always true. Scripture cannot lie. That's how we would say it today. God cannot lie. Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. And that's the title, I think, of a book by um, John MacArthur and some others contributed. Scripture cannot be broken. There was a whole conference on this when I was in seminary called the Inerrancy Summit. It was a four-day conference where they had all these speakers in the biblical reformed world come and speak their great conference. If you want to hear just many sermons on this and how they address certain challenges in the Bible, then go and listen to those. John 17, 17. Jesus could not be more clear. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Oh, not my feelings. Not not other people's applause. Not, Not what this mystic says. Not what that other book says. Your word is truth. Why do we always want to stray from God's word? We want to fill our minds with so much other stuff. Your word is truth. We can, we can take in other things. We can interact with things of the world in a Christian way. 
But we need to know God's word and know it in such a way that we believe it, we live it out, we can tell others about it. Your word is truth. So we're the authors, in, we're the authors fallible. We're the people who wrote scripture capable of making an error. Here's what the Chicago statement said. We deny that the finitude or fallenness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. So let's talk about that. Could Paul have ever said something that was wrong? Could Peter have ever said something? That, that, that's a really easy one for y'all. Could Peter have ever said something that wasn't right? That was a lie or that was false or that was deceptive. Yeah, unless it's quoting him doing something that was wrong, right? But we know that statement's true. But he himself was, he was being a bit deceptive when Paul talks in Galatians about how he would eat with the Jews and, and, and not with the Gentiles and so on when the Jews were around. So could they sin? Could the authors of Scripture ever commit a sin? Yeah, because there's only one person who's never sinned, right? Jesus. So Peter was a sinner, and we see some of his sins displayed in Scripture. Paul, of course, sinned. The question is not, were they perfect? The question is, when they wrote Scripture, did they make an error? So you have to get your categories straight in theology because people will attack you from different directions and they'll say, well, are you saying that Paul never ever committed an error? No, that's not what we're saying at all. We're saying when he wrote God's word, it wasn't an error. If he made a grocery list and, and sent you know, Timothy to pick up some supplies and he made a mistake and misspelled the word and, and you know, wrote something that was an error, that's not Scripture. Look at 2 Peter 1.21 again. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man. Prophecy, scripture. Prophecy is the word of God here. No prophecy, no word of God was ever made by the will of man. But men, yes, they were men. And yes, they committed errors in other places, but not when writing scripture because they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And these men spoke from God. So if they made a mistake in writing scripture, then the Holy Spirit made a mistake. And God the Father made a mistake. And by implication, God the Son made a mistake. An error. Not possible. So an infallible, here's the way to summarize it. An infallible God, a God who could not make an error, used fallible men, men can make errors, to produce an infallible Bible. So there's one, one fallible component here. It's not the Bible. It's not God. It's us. We, we can make errors. We are fallible. But when these men wrote scripture, the Spirit made sure that it was God's word and that it was true. And they never made a mistake. Now, before we get into John Frame's long quote, you might ask, well, what about the corrections that occur over the time of church history? What about the manuscript? What about those footnotes in your Bible that say, some manuscripts say? What about when you're in, I think it's 1 Samuel, it could be 2 Samuel, when it says there's 30,000 troops in the NASB, but the ESV has 3,000? What about when the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, disagrees with the Hebrew Old Testament. Go with the Hebrew one, by the way, but that's just my, my view. What about all these questions? That's a question of translation. That's a question of transmission. This doctrine here is not saying that a scribe in the Middle Ages who had frozen hands and was hungry and had to stay up and use the candlelight didn't write down the wrong letter on a certain Greek word. That's not the doctrine of inerrancy. That is just speaking of how man can mess up as they're doing a transcription. The King James had hundreds of typos when it first came out. In one place, it said she instead of he. And I can't remember if that was for God or I think it was for Joshua or somebody like that. Look up the she Bible. We'll be careful with that. Look up the she King James Bible. That'll, that'll get you closer. The she King James Bible. Those are worth a lot of money these days because they put some out that had this major typo in it. And then, of course, they corrected the, the printing. But those that are still around are worth a lot of money. So, yeah, the printers can make money. The transcriptionists make money, <laughs> make errors. The printer can make errors. The transcriptionists and so on. We'll talk about that next week with canonicity. How the Bible gets passed on from the original writings. How the Bible gets passed on from the original writings. That's God's perseverance. His word is there. It's just that a Along the way, some people kind of added some things to it. So today, there's something called textual criticism. 
Textual criticism says, does this come from the best and earliest manuscripts that we have? Because if it doesn't, we don't want it in there. That's why you have those footnotes. Early manuscripts say. Now the issue, I don't know it's going a little further than some of you might want to know, but the issue then is when the King James was translated, for example, they had a certain number of manuscripts. Then later we discover more. But everybody's used to the King James. And some people even today think, man, this is God's word, the King James. It was inspired into English. That's not true. The translation is not inspired. The original writing is inspired. So people get used to the King James. And now newer translations have to be done that go back and look at these early manuscripts. Now, often they're just little things. They're just mis, you know, different spellings, misspellings that the, the person copying it in the Middle Ages or whatever made. These are no big changes in doctrine. But the point is, God's word is in there. Just a few people put some things around it. We've got to cut out. Okay, so don't let that. If you get to the end of Mark, Mark 16, and you see all these footnotes in your Bible, that's, what, that's what's going on there. It's not that God's word is not true. It's not that God's word has an error. It's just that somewhere... Somebody started moving parts around the Bible because they didn't understand and they thought it sounded like Matthew and it's actually Mark or Luke or something and things and some transcriptionist mind got mixed up. So we'll look at that somewhat next week, I hope. Okay, an infallible God used fallible men to produce an infallible Bible. All right, well, sometimes people say, well, you know, in the Bible, it says... That these things happened and, you know, in the third day, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But it's actually only 48 hours. Is that an error? Well, if you get into how the Jews reckoned the days, it's three days. That's pretty simple, but some people don't buy that. They say the Bible's an error. How precise does the Bible have to be? You know, I have 10 children, so I won't name the one child. But I have one child who says, you know, Dad, that's actually not four feet. It's, it's four feet three inches and a half inch left over. It's four feet, you know? Now, if you're building a house like Carl, you've got to be exact. But if you're just saying about how tall is your brother, and I say, you know, he's four feet. That's close enough. So let's look at John Frame on this. A certain amount of precision. This is John Frame's The, the Doctrine of the Word of God. Huge tome just on all of these doctrines of bibliology. He says a certain amount of precision is often required for truth. But that amount varies from one context to another. In mathematics and science, truth often requires considerable precision. If a student says that 6 plus 5 equals 10, he has not told the truth. He has committed an error. If a scientist makes a measurement varying by 0.0004 centimeters of an actual length, he may describe that as an error, as in the phrase margin of error. So if you're doing science, if you're doing math, then you have to be very precise. If someone asks someone's age, the person's conventional response, at least if the questioner is entitled to such information, is to tell how old he was on his most recent birthday. But this, of course, is imprecise. It would be more precise to tell one's age down to the day, hour, minute, and second, or millisecond. I mean, you can just keep going, right? How precise do you want to be? However, would that convey more truth? And if one fails to give that much precision, has he made an error? I think not. As we use the terms truth and error, in ordinary language. So Frame is arguing here that, look, just because the Bible is not as precise as we would like it when it comes to measurements or when it comes to the statements, we, we tend to say that's not true. The Bible's not true. That's what the atheist will say. Look, right here, it says six cubits, but it's actually five and a half cubits. Or the, the calendar in 1 Kings doesn't match the calendar in 2 Kings. Now, all of those have answers. If you study them out, the calendar in, in Chronicles and Kings is what I meant. If you study those out, you'll find that there's reasons they're not matching. They're using a different dating system. But Frame is saying, look, we all communicate this way, and God communicates to us this way. Some things don't need to be that precise. That's not an error. Continuing on, he says, if someone seeks to tell his age down to the second, we usually say that he has told us more than we want to know. The question, what is your age, does not demand that level of precision. Indeed, when someone gives excess information in an attempt to be more precise, he actually frustrates the process of communication, hindering rather than communicating the truth. He buries his real age under a torrent of irrelevant words. We've all done this and we've talked to other people, right? 
We just want a yes-no answer. And it's like all this information. You're like, just get to the point, right? Just get to the point. You know, the government doesn't even want to know sometimes how much you make down to the penny, right? Do, do your taxes round up to the dollar? Is, is that an error? Did you lie on your taxes? Well, you didn't put the, the two decimal places that you made in your income? Continuing here with Frame, he says, similarly, when I stand before a class and a student asks me how large the te- textbook is, say that I reply 400 pages, but the actual length is 398. Have I committed an error or told the truth? I think the latter for the following reasons. In context, nobody expects more precision than I gave in my answer. I met all the legitimate demands of the questioner. B, 400 in this example actually conveyed more truth than 398 would have. 398 most likely would have left the student with the impression of some number around 300. But 400 presented the size of the book more accurately. So think about this. Whenever you, I know none of you stay up late watching infomercials. But when you see advertisements, used to, and still today, what what the number always end in? 99. Why? Because in your mind, if it's 99 cents or whatever on the end, right, you think of, of the first number. Or let's just say $99 or $999, whatever. This thing is $999. Well, in your mind, that's only in the 900s, right? It's not $1,000. That sounds like a lot of money. But $999, I mean, that's a steal. That's a deal. And so he's saying here, look, 400 is actually more accurate because that's closer to what it is. And 398 might, the student's thinking, I got to read all this textbook. Oh, it's only 300 pages. I can do that. Actually, actually it's very close to 400 pages. So we all do this. And, and suddenly people come to the Bible and say, well, you know, it says the, the sun rose. Joshua's off. Joshua has a, an error. The whole Bible is full of errors. No, how do we speak? We speak a certain way. Mankind, even though we don't speak Hebrew or Greek, we speak a certain way, and this is how the Bible was written. It wasn't written in some special angelic language. So he says a child who says in his math class 6 plus 5 equals 10 may not expect the same tolerance as a person who gives a rough estimate of his age or a professor who exaggerates the size of a book by two pages. So there are some contexts where you have to be very precise and others where that would be annoying. And, and if God did that in everything, we would never get to the point of the issue. God is communicating through the human authors in a way and a language that we can understand. So Frame continues, We should always remember that Scripture is, for the most part, ordinary language rather than technical language. Certainly, it is not of the modern scientific genre. In Scripture, God intends to speak to everybody. To do that most efficiently, He, through the human writers, engages in all the shortcuts that we commonly use among ourselves to facilitate conversation, imprecisions, metaphors, hyperbole, parables, etc. Not all of these convey literal truth or truth with a precision expected in specialized context, but they all convey truth. And in the Bible, there is no reason to charge them with error. Jesus says, I am the door. Well, would that, that would completely be out of bounds if we said, well, Jesus is lying. He's not a door. We all understand what he's getting at, right? He says, I am a door. I'm the great shepherd. I, I couldn't find a verse. You know, Christian, the atheist says, I can't find a verse that says Jesus was an actual shepherd watching sheep. No, metaphorically, he's the shepherd of his people, of God's people. He's the great shepherd. The great shepherd of all souls, even later in the New Testament, it says. So we don't expect that. Uh, of the Bible. We don't expect that the Bible's telling us all the physics and all the algebra and calculus and all of these things. It just says there was evening, there was morning on the second day. Okay, that's a day. We know a day is 24 hours. Okay? We don't know exactly when everything happened in that 24 hours. We don't know exactly. I mean, there was one guy who went back and he tried to find the exact time God created from the, the very first day. Right, he had, I think it was James Usher, right? The 1600s, the Puritan Irish guy. He wrote this tome on the age of the earth. And I think he does pretty good until he gets down to like the week, the day, and the second that God created. I think that goes a little too precise for what the Bible gives us. Inerrancy, therefore, means that the Bible is true. Not that it is maximally precise. To the extent that precision is necessary for truth, the Bible is sufficiently precise. 
but it does not always have the amount of precision that some readers demand of it. See, we think it ought to have something. It'd be nice to know a little bit more precision on this. Well, God didn't think that was important for us. It has a level of precision sufficient for its own purposes, not for the purposes for which some readers might employ it. It's not a calculus textbook. If it speaks on mathematics, then it's true. If it speaks on science, then what it says is true. But it doesn't say everything there is to say on those subjects. What's the Bible for? Salvation and sanctification. That's what it's sufficient for. That's God's design for it. It's not designed to give us every little detail that everyone might ask. I mean, think about that. Of all the billions of people that have existed, if God tried to put every detail that everyone might want to know in the Bible, that's ridiculous. Nobody would ever read it. It's hard enough for us to read the 66 books that we have, right? I would probably just comment on it and how I, I think it was. It could have been a, an actual true account, but it, someone seems to have added it in later. There, there's three big ones, right, uh, when it comes to textual criticism. At the end of John 7, the beginning of John 8, the end of Mark 16, and the, the verse that's supposed to prove the Trinity in 1 John 5, but wasn't there in any early manuscripts. The rest are just, you know, little changes, different spellings and so on. So those are the big ones. And the, the John one, I think, is a little harder because it comes in so early. That, you know, that there's reasons to believe, though, that it's not original to John. But just look at the footnotes. Most of us, I mean, my preaching Bible doesn't have footnotes, so maybe yours doesn't. But you can always get out a study Bible. Like when John MacArthur got to the end of Mark 16, he did not believe that Mark, the very end, the, those paragraphs that move around a lot in the manuscripts, was written by Mark. And so he commented on that, and then he preached a whole sermon on why we can trust our Bible. And when you really understand textual criticism, not to the nerdy point, not, not to where like Derek understands it, but when you really understand it, it gives you comfort because you realize there's 5,000 manuscripts or whatever. There's probably more now these days. And God's word is there. But bad copying and so on has added some things over time. We just got to cut those out. It's not like we lost anything from God though, right? It's like you go to a church. There's a lot of tradition, but God's word is there. Now you have to sort through Okay, what is tradition here and what is God's word? It doesn't mean God's word isn't preached or that's a false church. There just seems to be some tradition that crept into a church. We've got to sort that out. It's the same thing with the manuscripts. Any other questions about inerrancy? Yeah, I mean, in fact, if you look at some of the other false religions, you see how many errors there are and contradictions. That's another thing the atheists will say, the Bible has contradictions, which, you know, that's an error. So they say, there you go. It doesn't, if you look at it in context. But when you read some of the stuff that Muhammad wrote, he's contradicting himself all the time, saying things that don't, aren't real. Solomon talked to the phoenix who was risen from the ashes. You know, it's just weird stuff. It's not even... A lot of the books later written after the New Testament, the, the apocryphal stuff or the pseudepigrapha stuff, the shepherd of Hermas, where he has this vision. I think it's shepherd of Hermas, where the whale comes up and spits out a bunch of stuff that's prophecy. I mean, that's just fantastical stuff. It contradicts reality. It's not about God being miraculous. It's just contradicting reality. So yeah, if you look at other things out there, you know, there's a big debate over Shakespeare. Did he even write all that stuff? And they're always sorting through the manuscripts to find out who messed up the transmission of the manuscripts from Shakespeare to today. Not to mention, if you go, go back to Homer, right? That was the Iliad and the Odyssey or songs that they sung. And then sometime later, it gets written down. Author, authored by Homer, this guy, blind poet, but it gets written down later. So they have to go back and try to sort that out thousands of years later. We've had the Bible being copied all the way from the beginning. So yeah, that's really a different subject other than inerrancy. But that's a good point that you made, though, about other writings having errors. First and second Maccabees, for example contradicting things that are actually in scripture clearly okay we got three more minutes i can ask you questions or you can ask me questions yeah so but we have you know really thankful that god's always made sure we had people who could translate that into the common language and so and we're getting better at that i think over time as scripture is studied in the original language and more stuff pops up you know they found some of these things in israel over the last 50 100 years that not only prove that the Bible's true, we would expect that, but help us understand grammar a little better, documents. They found some 
more Greek stuff, even though it's, it's false teachings that they found in the desert of Egypt often with the, what was it, Gospel of Thomas? Chris, what was all that stuff? Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, other false writings. They give us a lot more of the Greek language, the Koine Greek language, which then helps us to understand, okay, what's the grammar, grammar here? And again, it just comes down to more precision. Not that people didn't have the Word of God in 1611 or previous. In fact, there was a lot of mistakes in the Latin translation, right? Luther comes and he translates it into German, the Bible. And suddenly, it's not penitence like it had been translated into Latin, but it's repentance. Completely different. Penitence, something you go work off, you go pay it off. Repentance is turning from it and turning to God. That was huge. That was the Reformation part of it right there. And that came down to translation. The Latin church for a thousand years had a bad translation. That doesn't mean there was never any believers for a thousand years. Obviously, there was. The church continued. But it was more precise to have a proper understanding of repentance. Okay, what's the argument for inerrancy? Here's your exam. How can we argue that the Bible's inerrant from the Bible? Who's got it? Look, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? That's, that's my verse, but let's just say it in, in common everyday language. Two, two points to prove it. God wrote the Bible. God cannot lie. Case closed. Case closed. God wrote the Bible. God cannot lie. You pass, Britta. You got 100. Everybody else, I don't know. Okay. Let's, next week, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about canonicity, and that touches on preservation, how God preserves his word, how he makes sure that we have it until today. But I do want to I've taught on canonicity a few times, and I want to open that up because a lot of people have questions. Why isn't this book included in the Bible? Why does the Roman Catholics have extra books? Why does the Eastern Orthodox Church have extra books? What about my friend who's added the Book of Mormon to the Bible? So on, right? How do we know that these books right here and this Bible is the Word of God, but other things aren't the Word of God? So we'll address that next week. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful your Word is inerrant. You have spoken truth to us. We must believe it. We must obey it. And without your word, we would be lost. We would be in darkness. With one error in the Bible, we would doubt everything. But you are true. God, you're a God. In your nature, you cannot lie. You're perfect. You're righteous. You're holy. You're completely separated from us. And it is not possible that you would lie or make a mistake. And we love you for that, Lord. We love you for who you are and praise you. We worship you. We honor you. And uh, help us to believe every word in this scripture. In the name of Jesus, amen.